G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. Now here's why it's important to look at the life of David. This is going to be fun. Because David blows it all the time. Today with Jeff Vines. Hello and welcome. My name is Bill. Thanks so much for joining me again on Today with Jeff Vines. Pastor Jeff is looking at the life of David. This message is the first in a new series about when the mighty fall. David was chosen by God to rule as king. He was far from perfect, but is known as a man after God's own heart. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 16, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Let's get into the message now on Today with Jeff Vines. Turning your Bibles over to 1 Samuel chapter 16, we start a new series today in the life of David, and I'm going to do something I seldom do. As a matter of fact, I don't think I've ever done this. I'm going to let the cat out of the bag early. Here's what I want to do. This entire weekend has been a weekend that I believe that God has designated as a time when if you've been coming to church for, I don't know, two months, two years, 20 years, but you know in your heart that you've never really committed, that you've never decided in your heart, and it's okay, I'm glad you're here, man. I'm glad you chose this place as your journey, because we respect all people on all journeys. But I would pray, and I'm hoping, that you're going to learn something today that you've never noticed before, and because it dawns on you so powerfully, that today would be the day. Now, you're in a safe place. Don't worry. Nobody's going to come out and get you. You're safe. But today would be the day that you would say, you know what? I'm all in. I'm in. I'm going to follow Jesus. That's what I want to do with my life. This makes sense to me now. This is what I'm going to do. And we're going to do a little reading here. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. All right, here's my question to you as we finish that passage. Have you ever been frustrated with God? No. God bless you. Thank you for coming. No, no. Uh, You ever, I mean, isn't there a part of you that even on the way to church, you're a little frustrated? Just a little part that says, you know, something like this. Here we go again. Can't wait to get to church and hear Pastor Jeff tell me one more thing I'm guilty of. (laughs) Has it ever crossed your mind at all? Yippee-ki-yay, let's go to church. Going to find out one more thing that's not in my life that should be or something that is in my life that should not be. 
Yippee-ki-yay, let's go to church, meet God, find out one more thing that's wrong with me. You ever feel that way? I feel that way, and I'm the preacher. <laughs> I mean, most of us look at God like he's a stern elementary teacher passing out grades. Holiness for you, Jeff, F. Purity, F. Anger, F. Forgiveness, F. Patience, F minus, right? <laughs> that's how we see God. Now, here's why it's important to look at the life of David. It's going to be fun. Because David blows it all the time. And yet, there's something unique about him. And he gives me hope. Yes, he was a fabulous musician. When King Saul was depressed, they would have David, little David, come in and play his heart. And it was like uh, musical Prozac. If King Saul would just, his spirits would be lifted. He was a formidable warrior. Uh, the guy was able to slay a Philistine giant before he was old enough to shave. He was a fierce competitor. He was willing to take on the lion and the bear if one of his sheep were in jeopardy. He was a great poet. He recorded a book of prayer that seems to transcend the generations, enlightenment and encouragement. He was a powerful statesman. As a matter of fact, he had such wisdom that during his reign, during the time David was king, Israel achieved the highest level of economic well-being, some might say in their entire history. And he was so loved and respected that when Messiah would come, what name were they going to give him? Son of David. Here's how John Ortberg describes him. David had a poetic soul of a Shakespeare, the competitive heart of a Michael Jordan, the musicianship of a Pavarotti, the statesmanship of a Lincoln, and the physical attractiveness of a Tom Cruise. <laughs> now, my, my wife has a thing for Tom Cruise. She would never admit it. She wouldn't. Most women won't. But I met Tom Cruise recently, as I said, and he looks a little short and dumpy to me, so I felt, I felt good. <laughs> but the point is this. David was very gifted, but he wasn't perfect. I mean, the guy struggled to be a good father. He stole another man's wife, got her pregnant, and then had her husband killed to cover it up. So this guy, in a great respect, is bad news. However, God looks at him and says this. He says, that's it. That's what I'm looking for right there. And I find that amazing. He's called a man after God's own heart. That's what I'm looking for. So obviously it's not perfection. That's what I want. That's what somebody finally gets it. This guy, David. Now, all my life I've heard him referred to as a man after God's own heart, but nobody ever explains to me what that means. And part of me feels like, well, I don't like it because it's like saying, why can't you be more like your older brother kind of thing? Well, how can I be more like David if I don't know what it means? What does it mean to have a heart after God's own heart? And just quickly, now we're going to lead on this journey to one major thought, but we got to go through some milestones first. Because when theologians talk about David having a heart after God's own heart, they usually talk about two things. Number one is this. David's heart was characterized by a wild or by a sense of wild abandon. Now, you ever been on vacation with somebody who wants to plan every detail of your day? And you want to kill them? I mean, my life is busy. I'm well-structured. I've got so many things I have to do before every weekend. And so when I go on vacation, I don't want to plan things out. I want to go with the flow. I want to dive in. I want to jump in. Whatever will be, will be. But some people think that they have been appointed by God himself to instruct everybody what you're to do every minute and hour of the day. But here's, we're in Zimbabwe, seated at a table, and over across from us was a, was a group that were traveling and seeing Victoria Falls together. So they were together. 
And you could just see the life being sucked out of them by this self-appointed tour guide. She was just one of them, but she felt it was her divine calling to say, okay, we're going to have breakfast at 7, 7.30. You got half hour room detail. I'll meet you in front of 8 o'clock. We'll take the taxi at 8.15. Well, I mean, oh my goodness. And I just looked over and I was tired and cranky anyway because it was late. And I just wanted to walk up and say, lady, do you see what you're doing, man? You're sucking the joy right out of this vacation. Knock it off. They want to be reckless. They want to take the plunge. Stop calculating everything. When it came to David's heart, he was neither calculating nor cautious. He just pressed the throttle down hard. And he said, God, I love you. I'm all yours. Whatever you want, I'm your man. And he was so into God, there were times that he'd be on a journey, he'd just have to stop just by the side of the road and just start dancing and praising God and thanking him for every good thing that was in his life. Is that you? You ever found yourself in LA traffic? I, gotta just, I just gotta pull over right now. I gotta pull over and get out and you just dance around the car. Yay, God loves me. Woo, have you ever do that? That's the kind of person David was. He wasn't perfect, but he was spontaneous. So much so that when the Ark of the Covenant was coming to Jerusalem and the Ark represented the presence of God, David was pumped, man. He was like a kid at the Christmas parade. Where's Santa? Where's Santa? And he kept waiting for the ark. And as soon as he saw it, he couldn't wait for it to get into town. Do you know what the Bible says he did? He started leaping, jumping, and then he started dancing. And then he started taking his clothes off. He did. It's in the Bible. He stripped down. And uh, you have to understand in first century culture, this was huge because a dignitary would never lift up the robe and show the lower legs that was undignified. And so you have David, king, start stripping down. And it's like David is saying, I don't care who sees me. God is in the house. Woo, this is great. Now, as with most wives, she puts a damper on it. I'm sorry. She says this to David, how the king, notice the sarcasm, has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls. And David's response is, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. He says, sweetheart, he probably didn't say that. He might have thought it. You ain't seen nothing yet. I'm going to shame myself even more. And the reason is when he came to David and his love for God, he just said, man, I just got to sing. I just got to dance. I just got to worship the Lord, man. And I don't care what anybody else thinks. Is that you? Is that you? Now, I know there are some of you, just time out for a second, who are in the room, who are on your journey. And maybe you're at church for the first time or you've been a few times and right now you're saying, I knew it. This guy's lost it. He's crazy. (laughs) This is why I don't go to church anymore. This guy's advocating strip dancing. (laughs) And that's not what I'm saying, but you have to understand something. You got to understand when you come into contact with God, you go through some phases. The first phase is you recognize you're a sinner and that you don't even keep your own moral law. Even if there was no moral code in the scripture, even if you don't agree with it, you have one, you violate it. So you feel pretty bad. But then when you meet God, you begin to understand the depth of his mercy and grace and how his acceptance of you is not based on your performance. It's based on the cross. So you get all happy inside. And then you start reading the Bible and you soon discover that the Bible is not a book to tell you how bad you are. It's actually a book to tell you how good God is. That he keeps loving, he keeps forgiving, no matter how many times his people are obstinate and stubborn and violate, he still says, if you will turn to me, I will heal your land. No matter how bad. And so that pumps you up. And then you lose your sense of entitlement. You realize God owes me nothing. My goodness, he owes me nothing. Everything I have is a blessing. 
So then you're pumped up with heaven because you know the reality. This world has nothing of substance to offer you. So you're pumped up of heaven. You know you're accepted by God, by his grace and mercy. And you know that everything you have is a gift. It's like, wow, I just want to dance. I want to sing. That's David. When's the last time you were so overwhelmed by what you had that you just had to dance and you had to sing and you had to strip. Don't strip in this church. We will escort you out. But what is the last time? When's the last time you felt the need just to, you know, just one time I would like to get a phone call from a young man that I go out to get out of prison, bail out of jail because he did something overnight. One time I'd like to go down and a police officer say, yeah, we had to arrest him. He was in the middle of the street dancing and singing praises to the Lord. And then he started taking his clothes off. God got to put him in prison. Now, no, I obviously don't want that to happen, but I would rather that happen than some of the other things that you just lost it and had to start praising the Lord. Halfway up to that prison in Kilgali, we stopped at a Methodist guest house. At 5.30 in the morning, I'm worn out. I'm tired getting ready to go to the prison. And I, at 5.30, it's like four or 500 voices just shouting through the air. It wakes me up. That's an alarm and a half right there, let me tell you. I throw open the window, and there, that's exactly what it was. Four to 500 people, it sounded like just screaming and yelling. But it was, it was, it was somewhat orchestrated. It, it was controlled. So I went down at 6 a.m. in the morning to have my cup of coffee with Anastas, my translator. And I said, Anastas, what was that noise this morning? He said, oh, you heard the call to worship. I said, what, what do you mean? He says, well, there's a call to worship in Islam at 5.30. And he said, but don't worry, Jeff. In Rwanda, there are thousands and thousands more Christians than Muslims. And at 5.30 every morning, the Christians are up. And for an hour to two hours at sunup, they all stand up with their hands in the air. Think about this, one to two hours, praising God and thanking him for another day. And they're so happy of all the things they do have. Now you think about all the things they have and how good God has been that most Rwandan Christians will spend a couple of hours of every day when they first get up in worship and praise. And the first thing I thought of is what on earth is wrong with me? I have no passion early in the morning to stand before God for two hours. <gasps> That's right. And neither do you. <laughs> like, like, come on, this is an honest church around here, right? It is what it is. And why? What is wrong with me, man? That I don't feel the need in a traffic jam to pull over and just start. Otherwise, other than the fact people think I'm crazy. But why don't I ever feel the need just to drop down where I am on my knees when I have more than two-thirds of the rest of the world? Why don't I feel the need to get up in the morning, God, I just praise you today, and I'm going to stand here for at least one hour. I'm lucky to do it for five minutes. What is wrong with me? And I know the answer. It's a rhetorical question. Same thing that's wrong with you. Sorry. You and I, we don't revel in God's presence. And you know why? Because we are distracted. And you know what we're distracted by? You talk about the highest irony ever, we're distracted by his blessings. Things that he has given distract us and take us away from him. And you're like me, look, this is not a judgmental sermon. I wish I had the heart of David, don't you? And I know that you do too. I know when you're hearing this, yeah, man, I, well, I'm not like that. Well, how do we get it? Well, we get it by asking God to give us a Jesus revelation. We get on our knees and we say, God, help me to see my life. I'm distracted as you see it and the world as you see it but I'm afraid to pray that prayer. Honest. You know why I'm afraid? I'm afraid if I pray that prayer, God will say, okay, then I'll give that to you. And he'll start removing the distractions. But I love the distractions. <laughs> I don't want to lose them. And what if God starts to remove things I love? 
Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So my treasure may not be where it should be. That is the point with David. David's heart fully and completely belongs to God. That is his treasure. And God is not my treasure the way he should be. And I'm just optimistic enough to, to think that even though 46 years I have not done it properly, I am just optimistic enough that we can pray that God's hand would move in this church and among our people and he would do something that we would be like David and have his heart. Because right now I don't. And my favorite story about David is in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And God demands that David go up and offer a sacrifice. And on the way up to offer a sacrifice, David meets a man named Arauna. And Arauna comes down to David and says, David, I, word on the street is, you've been demanded by God to offer a sacrifice. Don't pay for the cattle yourself or the wood to make the altar. I'll donate all that and you can go up and make the sacrifice. Do you know what David's response is? Verse 24 of 2 Samuel 24, I will not sacrifice to my Lord, my God, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. He says, there's no way I'm going to give something to God that didn't cost me something that's not sacrificial. Man, David's heart belonged to God. And when theologians talk about what that means, they usually start out with this whole thing that David's heart was characterized by a sense of wild abandon. Impulsive worship, impulsive praise, impulsive giving. Hey, think about this for a moment. What are all these things indicative of? Romance. What do you do when you're trying to win the heart of a lady? Spontaneous praise. You just break out. You look beautiful, sweetheart. Now, this happens before the marriage. <laughs> you look beautiful, sweetheart. Today, the way the sun hits your hair, you look like an angel. Your eyes are all sparkly. And, you know, you're just, you're just beautiful. And then have some roses or some chocolate. Remember before the marriage? It's like a young man courting the love of his life. David love, loves God that way. Spontaneous praise. God, I just love you. Spontaneous gifts. Here I am, God. Now, when we talk about that, we talk about a second thing, or at least theologians do. They say that not only was David's heart characterized by a sense of wild abandon, but it was characterized by a deep reflection. Now, those two things don't usually go together, and I want you to stay with me on this one. People who act on impulse just act on impulse all the time. They don't have time to just sit and reflect about anything. But David knew that it was absolutely essential, if you're ever really going to know God, that you would have to spend time in solitude. Now, did you hear me? You will never know who God really is and what he is like until you pause to take time to spend time alone with God. Same way with a woman. You will never know who she really is until you spend time with her. And the more time you spend, the more you learn. What happened after David's anointed king in this passage? Does he go into Jerusalem, march into Jerusalem and take the throne? No. Do you know what he does? He goes back out with the sheep for years. It's going to be years before he takes the throne. And I'm sure he went back to the sheep and said, hey guys, I'm the king now. And what would their response have been? Something like this. <laughs> Years of solitude because he's going to be growing deep with God. Now, I don't know how many of you know the name Henri Nouwen, but he's famous among pastors in America. Now, let me tell you why he's famous. Because the noise just got to him. He was a very gifted communicator, very gifted. But the noise of life in America got to him. And the complaints 
And the sense of entitlement of his flock, which I know you're not like that, of his flock just got to him. He thought their arguments were petty. He chose to just get out of the ministry. And I believe he went to Canada and spent the rest of his life in service to those who were moderately or severely handicapped. Every day of his life spent in service. And in that, he spent time alone with God. And here's what he writes. Solitude molds self-righteous people into gentle, forgiving people who are so deeply convinced of their own great sinfulness and so fully aware of God's even greater mercy. Now, do you know what he's saying? Listen, please hear me. You, you will never know that God is good and loving and kind and merciful and is, has best interest in your life and wants the very best for you. You'll never learn that outside of solitude. And that's why I say there is a high price to pay without solitude. Now, you're still saved. Your name's in the book of life. That's what Jesus did. That's not what this is about. This is about without solitude, God will always seem to be the harsh teacher passing out failing grades. But in solitude, you begin to learn that he is loving, he is kind, and he wants to empower you for the victories in your life. Indeed, our God is loving, kind, and wants to empower you for the victories in your life. We're going to have to pause the message there, but next time we'll pick it up and continue hearing about David's life and what we can apply in our lives. David wanted to know God, who he really was. He wanted to know what was important to God so it could become important to him. He wanted to know what God really cared about so that he could care about that. And he wanted to know what moved God so that he could move God. And he knew the only way to do that was no shortcut through solitude. Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, Head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.